Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Thursday, October 31st, 2019, is a distinguished Lehrman Fellow at NYHS Lecture. In this talk, historian Andrew Roberts discusses material that had to be cut from his award-winning Churchill biography in order for it to be successfully bound. In ancient Rome, uh, you'll remember how there was always a slave in the chariot at a triumph um, uh, to whisper, remember Caesar, thou art mortal. And can you imagine how irritating that must have been? Um, and uh, in, my, in my case on Tuesday night, it was my son, Henry, uh, who in the taxi on the way back to the hotel said, um, Daddy, do they run out of American historians? <laughs> A few months before the publication of my book, uh, Churchill Walking the Destiny, my publishers, who are here this evening, and, um, and thank you for doing this, uh, I, I, uh, it needed to be done. They told me that I needed to cut 60,000 words from it, about 10% of the book. Um, when it was published, it was still 1,100 pages long, and they feared that if it were any longer, the glue might detach from the stitching on the spine, uh, and no nobody would have wanted that to have happened. So, uh, so I had to cut these words. To write is to choose, and I somehow had to uh, choose the uh, 60,000 words for the literary equivalent of the cutting room floor uh, from a book that I had already thought was about as tight and as taut as possible. There's a story about a Princeton professor who spent decades editing the complete and voluminous papers of Alexander Hamilton. And when he was finally done, he said, by the end, I was rooting for Burr. <laughs> <laughs> um, that certainly never happened to me. Uh, if anything, I was rooting for Churchill even more at the end than when I started writing about him uh, 30 years ago. So what to lose? Here are the parts that didn't make the cut, not because of the quality of the material, but simply through serendipity. I've arranged them chronologically, and while of course I want to impress and uh, interest you in this speech, I'm also conscious of the danger um, that you'll think less of the actual published book and think that I made the wrong choices about what I kept and, and what I cut. In July 1899, Churchill published a short story entitled Man Overboard, an episode of the Red Sea. It was about a passenger on a mail steamer who fell overboard unnoticed at night. He, sw quote, he swam on mechanically along the track of the ship, Churchill wrote, sobbing silently to himself in the misery of fear. After a while, he begins to drown, just like Churchill so nearly had himself drowned six years earlier in, like, in uh, Lake Lausanne. However, in the story, the man is eaten by a shark, um, after cr having cried out in despair, Oh God, let me die, Churchill ends with the words, quote, Upright in the water, 50 yards away, was a black triangular object. It was a fin. It approached him slowly. His last appeal had been heard. <laughs> it's a macabre tale with no discernible moral, um, manifesting that streak of fatalism Churchill always had with him. But... Uh, it showed that even age 24, he could write descriptive passages with all the confidence of a novelist, such as the one from this, uh, this one from the first paragraph, quote, the still surface of the waters was broken only by the movement of the great ship, from whose quarter the long slanting undulations struck out like the feathers from an arrow shaft, and in whose wake the froth and air bubbles churned up by the propeller trailed in a narrowing line to the darkness of the horizon. In the January 1906 general election, apologising for a remark he made three years earlier opposing the Education Act, Churchill told an audience in Manchester, it was a stupid thing to say. I said a lot of stupid things when I worked with the Conservative Party <laughs> and left it because I did not want to go on saying stupid things. 
1912, asked by the new newspaperman George Riddle what was the most impressive sight he'd ever seen in his life. Churchill answered that without doubt it had been the dervish advance to the Dome of the Dawn on the morning of the Battle of Omdurman. But after that, it was the entry of the British troops into Ladysmith on the 28th of February 1900, relieving the town after its gruelling four-month siege by the Boers. It was a great sight, he said. It made me weep and my heart throbbed wildly. The rugged, dirty, begrimed troops looked tanned and hard as steel, and the defenders with trim uniforms and wan, pale faces. On February the 22nd, 1919, Churchill gave a speech for the English-speaking Union at the Criterion Restaurant in London, which still exists, indeed, and entirely unchanged uh, from, that, um, from a century ago, in which he attempted to argue, to much laughter, that, quote, George Washington was an English gentleman who fought against the German king and defended his country by the aid of men of British blood against the very considerable number of Hessian and Hanoverian mercenaries. Got to remember, of course, the First World War had only ended three months uh, earlier. His action was supported by the greatest master of English eloquence and by the most successful warrior statesman, Lord Chatham, of whom our annals in this island have record. Of course, Chatham's record was overtaken by his own son, William Pitt the Younger, and a century and a half later, his record was overtaken by Churchill himself. While lunching in a restaurant at the Paris Peace Conference, the conversation between the Tory leader, Andrew Bonner Law, the Prime Minister, David Lloyd George, and Churchill himself, got round to the question of corporal punishment in schools. Law, who grew up in Canada, said he had never been thrashed, uh, that is, whipped on the bottom at school. In Britain, it was a form of punishment that um, I can personally attest uh, lasted until the late 1970s, vigorously. Um, Lloyd George claimed that he led a campaign against it at his school. Thrashed, said Churchill. I've been misunderstood from my childhood up. Of course I was thrashed. Whereupon Bonner Law said to the Prime Minister, LG, what would have Winston been like if he hadn't been thrashed? <laughs> Uh, at this point, I can't resist um, telling this anecdote about uh, David Lloyd George going to the Paris Peace Conference. His own biographer, John Grigg, was never able to track this down, so it's possible it might be apocryphal, but in my view, it's too good to be checked. Um, <laughs> and uh, that was when, um, uh, when a journalist asked Lloyd George whether or not he would be taking Mrs. Lloyd George to, the, uh, to Paris. And uh, he replied, would you take sandwiches to a banquet? <laughs> I know. Later that same year, in June 1919, when the Duke of Rutland called for prayers for rain to be inserted in the prayer book to deal with a drought, Churchill, who was then Minister of War and Air, amused himself by writing a short letter to the Times. I cannot help feeling that the Board of Agriculture should first of all be consulted, Churchill wrote. They should draw up a schedule of the exact amount of rainfall required in the interests of this year's harvest in different parts of the country. This schedule could be placarded in the various places of worship at the time when the appeal is made. <laughs> he was far less teasing and more waspish at a meeting in Dundee in February 1920 when he was accused of cowardice for the first and, as far as I can see, the only time in his life. Referring to the Dardanelles catastrophe of five years earlier, a heckler had shouted, you resigned when the danger was on, to which Churchill replied amid cheers. I've often heard shrewd, clever inter interruptions, which were quite reasonable and legitimate, but never silly catcalling groans and mews arising now here and now there without apparently any coherent force underlining them, and no desire for, uh, but for a little cheap self-advertisement on the part of some little non-entity. <laughs> a month later, he began a letter to his wife Clementine on her 35th birthday in this wonderfully romantic way. Twelve times I have seen your birthday come, and each time your gracious beauty and loving charm have made a deeper impression on my heart. It ended, God bless you, my darling, in the year that now opens and give you happinesses which fill your life. He was writing to her because he was boar hunting with General Rawlinson and painting on the Duke of Westminster's estate in southwest France. 
By the time he returned, she had done all the work moving into their new flat at number two, <laughs> Sussex Square, which had a painting studio for him and the muse behind the house. It was sadly destroyed in the Blitz. Churchill's nickname, by the way, for wild boars was pen wipers, um, and, and no one knows why. A letter to Clementine two years later gives an insight into his unconscious aristocratic grandeur and the, si uh, the size of the dining room at uh, Chat Chartwell as well, his lovely uh, manor house in Kent. Entitled, and this, he writes this at the top of the letter, A Dissertation on Dining Room Chairs. Uh, it states, the dining room chair has... He's writing to his wife, remember. The dining room chair has certain very marked requisites. Uh, it needed to be comfortable, have arms, be compact, and, quote, the back almost perpendicularly over the legs. There also needs to be never fewer than 20 of them. <laughs> I drink champagne at all meals and buckets of claret and soda in between, he told Clementine in April 1924, and the cuisine, though simple, is excellent. In the evening, Churchill, um, the Churchill family played the fiendishly complex ancient Chinese game Mahjong and uh, listened to gramophone records. A year later, he wrote to Clementine about a, for a foreign policy debate in which Lloyd George, Austin Chamberlain, and uh, Stanley Baldwin had all spoken, saying, it is now a convention that foreign affairs are only to be treated in unctuous platitudes, which bear no relation to what is actually going on. This is called open diplomacy. <laughs> Churchill used to practice his speeches out loud and constantly in every room of the house. On hearing him seemingly call for something, his valet, uh, Norman McGowan entered his bathroom only to be told from the bath, I wasn't talking to you, Norman. I was addressing the House of Commons. <laughs> After Churchill joined Baldwin's government, the Oxford professor, Maurice Bowerer, witnessed him play a game of chess with Baldwin's great enemy, the former Prime Minister, Herbert Asquith. Churchill got his pieces out in no time, writes Bowerer, but Asquith was setting out his pawns with some deliberation. When Churchill said... Marshal your Baldwins, marshal your Baldwins. Asquith was delighted with this. Churchill's hatred of communism had not lessened even a decade after the Bolshevik Revolution. In July 1927, he wrote in a magazine article, there is not a single social or economic principle or concept in the modern Bolshevik which has not been realized, carried into action, and enshrined in immutable laws a million years ago by the white ant. He made a good joke that month when, as Chancellor of the Exchequer, he stated that his 5% betting tax had probably lessened the amount of bets that were being placed. If so, he told the House of Commons, my sorrows on the Exchequer's account are to some extent assuaged by my satisfaction as a moral reformer. The idea of Churchill as a moral reformer got a good laugh in the House of Commons. Um, but he returned to the subject two years later when he visited Prohibition America and was asked, um, uh, very often asked, about the dangers of alcoholism. And on one occasion he replied, like you, we attacked those evils by state interference with the liberty of the citizen, but we used the two sharp methods of taxation and regulation. We treated the problem as a disease rather than a moral issue. Very Churchillian, that. Although Churchill's own sexual morals were rigid and uncompromising, being desperately in love with Clementine from the day he met her in 1908 until the day he died 57 years later, he was never censorious about those whose morals were more malleable. After a dinner party of worldly divorced ladies, including a few notorious society, high society, horizontale, given in his uh, honour by Asquith's former mistress, Venetia Stanley, Churchill wrote to a friend, this is the sort of company I should like to find in heaven. Stained, perhaps, stained but positive. Not those flaccid sea enemies of virtue who can hardly wobble an antenna in the turgid waters of negativity. <laughs> Jokes were never far from the surface with Churchill, who, in 1931, said of his defeat in the Westminster by-election that year that the principle of the boomerang a weapon which we owe to the genius of the Australian Aboriginals, is, it would seem, increasingly operative in human affairs. Because Churchill was broke pretty much all his life, he was forced to write about every subject imaginable. 
Here is a quotation from Collier's magazine in August 1933. <coughs> a dangerous yet almost universal habit of the American people is the drinking of immense amounts of iced water. This has become a ritual. If you go into a cafeteria or drugstore and order a cup of coffee, a tumbler of iced water is immediately set before you. This bleak beverage is provided on every possible occasion. Whatever you order, the man behind the counter will supply this apparently indispensable concomitant. <laughs> the publication of his truly great four-volume biography of his great ancestor, the first Duke of Marlborough in 1934, provided a large number of opportunities to dwell, delve into the thoughts and the character of its author. Churchill's willingness to take profoundly unpopular stances during that decade, especially, of course, over appeasement, might be spotted from his comment on Charles II Viscount Townsend in that volume. Everyone who knew Townsend loved him, wrote Churchill. This last must always be considered a dubious qualification. Elsewhere in that book, Churchill set out his view, without saying so specifically, on the Whig, Marxist, and other determinist views of history, when he wrote, one must beware of trying to find a pattern everywhere amongst the facts of history. It's only sometimes that design is truly present, and even then, there are often many occasions happening unexpectedly or disjointedly from day to day which are inconsistent with it. The refusal of successive governments to allow Churchill back into government in the 1930s was explained by Neville Chamberlain to a young Tory MP in 1935 when he quoted Lord Haldane, uh, who knew Churchill extremely well, of course, just before the First World War, saying that arguing with Churchill was like arguing with a brass band. <laughs> and so Churchill stayed in the wilderness throughout the 1930s, which has been dubbed the devil's decade, the morbid age the locust years. The effect on Churchill was clear from a line in the first volume of his war memoirs, The Gathering Storm, when he wrote, he was writing about, in particular, a, uh, a debate in 1935, uh, when he was warning about the size of the Luftwaffe, and uh, no one was, uh, was taking him seriously. The government was questioning his numbers, which actually turned out, ultimately, to underplay the danger. And, uh, and he said, to be so entirely convinced and vindicated in a matter of life and death to one's country, and not to be able to make Parliament and the nation heed the warning or bow to the proof by taking action was an experience most painful. He was nonetheless able to make jokes. After his uh, friend A.P. Herbert made his maiden speech in favour of liberalising the divorce laws in 1935, Churchill joked, call that a maiden speech? It was a brazen hussy of a speech. <laughs> Never did such a painted lady of a speech parade itself before a modest parliament. In April 1938, he even tried a mother-in-law joke, um, writing the Daily Telegraph about how Britain had to increase its aircraft manufacture enormously and immediately. He wrote, as the man whose mother-in-law had died in Brazil replied, when asked how the remains should be disposed of, Embalm, cremate, and bury. Take no risks. <laughs> <laughs> only uh, five weeks, only five weeks into the Second World War in early October 1939, Neville Chamberlain told his sister Ida that he was getting very tired with the barrage of letters from Winston arriving every day and increasingly devoted to matters outside his sphere at the Admiralty. He sent for Churchill in order to have what he described as a frank talk. During it, Churchill swore vehemently that he had no desire or intention of intrigue and that his sole desire was to help me win the war. I believe all this was quite genuine, though Churchill is in some respects such a child that he neither knows his own motives or sees where his actions are leading him. It was true that there had been a barrage of letters, though by no means daily, but they were about weighty issues. Letters that a Prime Minister should have been ready, perhaps even pleased, to engage upon in wartime, rather than treating with such weary and suspicious disdain. Churchill had written to him about the blackout, bombing policy, artillery, new battleships, U-boat losses, 
a new ministry of shipping, the lessons of Germany's Polish campaign, how to build a 55-division army, and a common statement on anti-submarine warfare and the fleet air arm. The letter that prompted Chamberlain's ire was about sustaining the French when Hitler opened his expected peace offensive, the number of RAF squadrons and the state of air raid precautions. These were weighty issues. The Admiralty was the most important ministry in the phony war, and Churchill was constantly proposing new ideas and positive measures in them. By then, shipping losses had totaled 32 ships, comprising 154,000 tons. Yet Chamberlain extracted a promise from Churchill not to write any more letters to him. A few days later, which didn't last long, by the way, um, a few more uh, days later, Churchill sat next to the Earl of Crawford at dinner, who he noted was sparing of victuals and liquor, and spoke inspirationally of the war at sea, ending with a joke that he had decided not to tell in his recent speech in the House of Commons. It was about a U-boat that had been sunk so successfully that the only thing that came to the surface was a white wooden door which had WC painted on it in big letters. My own initials, he said. <laughs> and I took it as a real compliment. <laughs> At the end of dinner, a former Chancellor of the Exchequer, Lord Horne, whispered to Crawford, Churchill is the man, the only man, the only possible successor to Neville Chamberlain. It was interesting that at a political gathering, cabinet ministers were present. Such views needed to be whispered. Churchill was still not prime minister in February 1940 when his 17-year-old uh, daughter, Mary, was presented to the king and queen as a debutant at uh, court. Papa, she, noticed in her, she noted in her diary, in spite of all work and everything, comes and sits with us for a little while. This is just one example of his superb charm and gender, general wonderfulness. Fortunately, Churchill was Prime Minister by, by July 1940, and that month, General Sir Marshall Cornwall, Sir James Marshall Cornwall, who commanded three corps, was invited to spend the night at Chequers, along with the CIGS, the Chief of the Imperial General Staff, uh, General Sir John Dill. He wrote a lively account of the evening, which he called the Mad Hatter's Tea Party. Churchill was bubbling over with enthusiasm and infectious gaiety, Marshall Cornwall wrote. I marveled that he could appear so carefree with the enormous load of anxieties on his shoulders. As soon as the champagne was served, Churchill started interrogating Marshall Cornwall and was shocked to hear that Three Corps um, was not ready to take the field because of incomplete equipment and training. Churchill then drew a sheaf of papers from his dinner jacket pocket and pushed a pudgy finger over the graft table, saying that, according to his figures, the Corps was 100% ready in personnel rifles and mortars and 50% ready in field artillery anti-tank rifles and machine guns. When Marshal Cornwall disputed these figures, the PM's brow contracted, almost speechless with rage. He hurled the graphs across the dinner table to Dill, saying, CIGS, have those papers checked and return to me tomorrow. To change the subject, after an awkward silence, Professor said, Prof, what have you got for me today? Professor Lindemann was wearing a morning coat and striped trousers, and he pushed his hand deep into his tail pocket and, like a conjurer, drew forth a Mills hand grenade. An uneasy look appeared on the faces of his fellow guests, and the PM shouted, What's that you've got, Prof? What's that? This, Prime Minister, is the inefficient... Mills bomb issued to the British infantry. It is made of 12 different components. Now, I have designed an improved grenade, which has fewer machined parts and contains a 50% greater bursting charge. Splendid, splendid, that's what I like to hear. CIGS, have the Mills bomb scrapped at once and replaced by the Lindemann grenade. Dill tried to explain that the contracts for millions of Mills bombs had gone out and that it was far too late to alter the design now, but Churchill had already moved on. Max, Churchill said to Beaverbrook, what have you been up to? Max Beaverbrook made a telephone call and returned to announce, Prime Minister, in the last 48 hours, we've increased our production of hurricanes by 50%. As the coffee and brandy circulated, Churchill lit his cigar and took Dill and Marshall Cornwall to the Hawtrey Room, which is just on the right-hand side of um, Chequers. If you go through the, to the, through the front door, it's first on the right. And... Um, which had a large-scale map of the Red Sea, and asked Marshal Cornwall how he would capture the Italian-held port of Massawa in Eritrea. 
Marshall Cornwell gave his considered opinion that the mining of the harbour and the fact that it was outside RAF fighter cover meant that General Wavell would be left to take it from the landward side. The PM gave me a withering look, rolled up the map, and muttered peevishly, you soldiers are all alike, you have no imagination. Of course, much of Marshall Cornwall's account was intended satirically. Churchill knew Mill's bombs very well, having used them in the trenches, and Beaverbrook could not claim to have increased hurricane production by anything like 50%. Yet through the satire, it does, I think, give some flavour of the atmosphere of Chequers in the summer of 1940. Mention of his uh, cigar reminds me that when he was asked if he smoked too much, he replied, if I had not smoked so much, I might have been bad-tempered at the wrong time. <laughs> For all my problem with Marshall, uh, the Marshall Cornwall story, the subjects about which Churchill did fire off minutes included horse racing, the number of Japanese living in British Columbia, the waste of pig food, and the possibility of rich Americans leasing islands off the Kerry coast for radar bases. He complained that the phrase, stay put, was an Americanism, and he wanted it changed to stand firm or stand fast. It was in reference to bombing Germany that Churchill had said in 1940 that he did not see why, quote, the disgusting, stertorious slumber of the Bosch should remain undisturbed. And on another occasion, when discussing uh, dropping light bombs over Germany, he said, we might as well drop roast chestnuts. Typical Foreign Office jargon, he said of one report. It contains every cliché, but please, address, uh, please adjust your dress before leaving. Churchill was referring to a sign that was common in restrooms, reminding gentlemen to do up their flies. Another jibe um, that he made was that if you need a line of policy from a Foreign Office memorandum, you must either read the paragraphs with even numbers or those with odd numbers, because he said that every other paragraph began, on the other hand... <laughs> There was no danger in 1940, Churchill told the historian A.L. Rouse in 1955, who was so surprised that he wrote it down immediately. The, Churchills hadn't, the, sorry, the Germans hadn't thought of ways and means of crossing the water, had nothing prepared, said Churchill. If they'd attempted it, we should have put everything into it, the whole of the Navy and Air Force. It would have been fearful. He then made a swimming gesture, indicating the uh, Germans um, who would have been drowned in the English Channel. Churchill's words were true to an extent, but if the Luftwaffe had decisively won the Battle of Britain or so destroyed the RAF airfields as to render them inoperable, then Hitler, who had gambled so much already, hitherto successfully, might well have tried to follow up his French coup in Britain. With command of the air and the chance to sink Royal Navy ships sailing south from Scarpa Flow, the odds might well have been tipped in his favour. For all his later revisionism, Churchill had been correct back in 1940 when he had spoken of how much was owed by so many to so few. In November 1940, Churchill took his private secretary, Jock Colville, down to see the gigantic girders that in underpinned the central war rooms, now the Churchill war rooms, uh, in November 1940. With astonishing agility, he climbed over girders wrote the impressed Colville, balanced himself on their upturned edges some five feet above the ground and leapt from one to another without any signs of an undue effort. Extraordinary in a man of almost 66 who never takes any exercise of any sort. Churchill sometimes dwelt in the realm of counterfactual history and would quote dramatically from a mythical history book of the future, amusing his listeners that by denouncing the criminal gambler who sent overseas the divisions which might have turned the scale against the German invasion at home, or the vacillators who sent to Greece the aeroplanes which could have turned the North African fiasco into a success. When in January 1941, it was believed that Vice Admiral Emile Muselier, uh, commander of the Free French Navy, had tried to leak the Dakar, the plans for the uh, attack on Operation Menace, the attack on Dakar in September 1940, to uh, Vichy. Churchill wanted him arrested and hanged. De Gaulle said that he was innocent and that the Nazis had framed him. Alec de Cadogan, the permanent undersecretary at the Foreign Office, was furious that, quote, it was that baby dictator Winston who ordered immediate and premature action, unquote. The documents turned out to be forged, and Churchill apologised to de Gaulle, but not before Moselier had spent time in Pentonville and Brixton prisons, 
When I'm in the wrong, Churchill told Anthony Eden, I'm always very angry. How frightened of the PM all these people are, Cadogan wrote, admitting, so am I, because he's impulsive and undependable. General de Gaulle and his liaison officer, Louis Spears, as well as Robert Menzies, the Australian Prime Minister, came to stay at Chequers two months later. At dinner, de Gaulle said, the important thing for people living in, an oct in occupied territory was to remain aloof and superior, advice that he very much um, followed himself, despite living in, uh, in, in Britain. Churchill's son-in-law, Duncan Sands, said he wanted to destroy German cities, quote, so that for years the German people might be occupied in reconstruction. He wanted to destroy their books and libraries so that an illiterate generation might grow up. Churchill replied that he did not believe in pariah nations, and he saw no alternative to the acceptance of Germany as part of the family of Europe. In the event of invasion, he would not even approve of the civilian population murdering the uh, Germans quartered on, him, on them. Still less would he condone atrocities against the German civil population if we were in a position to commit them. Commit them. He cited an incident when the ancient Athenians spared a city which had massacred some Athenian citizens. This was Mytilene in uh, 47 BC. Not because the inhabitants were men, but because of the nature of man. When, when someone equated Britain's position to that of ancient Carthage, Churchill said, the Almighty had given Carthage a raw deal last time and might alter the outcome on this occasion. Actually, that reminds me of a wonderful joke that Mark Clark, General Mark Clark, made when uh, in, um, in Italy in 1944, one of his staff officers said at dinner that um, we mustn't have, when, when uh, peace was made at the end of the Second World War, we mustn't have a Carthaginian peace uh, like the uh, Versailles peace in uh, 1919, and Mark Clark uh, replied, well, you don't hear much from those Carthaginians nowadays, do you? <laughs> in his speech to the House of Commons on the war situation in September 1941, uh, covering Russia and America and Iran, Churchill included a moving passage about minesweeping, saying, we do not hear much about it, because 20,000 men and 1,000 ships toil ceaselessly with many strange varieties of apparatus to clear the ports and channels every morning of the deadly deposits of the night. In February 1942, Churchill expressed his irritation over low egg production to Robert Hudson, the Minister of Agriculture, writing, I wish I could persuade you to try and overcome the difficulties instead of merely entrenching yourself behind them. Although Britain made heroic efforts to increase food production, without imports of flour, meat, sugar, and fats, the Ministry of Food warned the cabinet and American food officials in November 1942 that Britain could only hold out for four to six months. In March 1943, it was forced to halve that time. Churchill was particularly concerned that meat production might fall. Yet when two vegetarians, um, Prof Professor Lindemann and Stafford Cripps, arrived late for a cabinet meeting, Churchill greeted them with the words, well, gentlemen, if you've finished toying with your beetroot, we might get on to important matters. <laughs> in February, in, uh, sorry, April 1942, President Roosevelt's uh, envoy, Harry Hopkins, cabled FDR to say that discussions with Churchill and the British Chiefs of Staff were progressing very satisfactorily. He added elsewhere that, my underwear is itching like the devil, uh, which was probably more information than the president needed to know. <laughs> when the great Ukrainian pianist, Beno Moisevich, played at Chequers after dinner in May 1944, Churchill startled everyone by saying, what mattered in music are the silences between the notes, something Moisevich was to recall for years afterwards. <laughs> that month, Churchill told Colville, I've not always liked the month of May. This time, I hope it may be all right. Colville had heard him denounce May before, even though it was the month on which he became prime minister. It had also been the one that, uh, in which he had been forced to resign as first Lord of the Admiralty during the Dardanelles catastrophe in 1915, which probably started this uh, superstition. Despite everything that had happened in France since D-Day, the Tory backbiting against him still continued until the summer of 1944. There is talk everywhere, the former Tory party chairman, Lord Davidson, told the chairman of the Tory backbenchers, Sir Alexander Erskine Hill, quote, that Winston, being half an American, 
has sold us to the Americans and is accepting for this country and the empire the position not of a partner, but of an employee or pensioner of the United States. There is great per perturbation in the highest quarters in the ministerial circle. Instead of treating this letter with contempt, Erskine, Erskine Hill replied that it confirms views I've heard in other responsible quarters and arranged a meeting to discuss the matter. A few months earlier, Churchill had a good line to describe such parliamentary critics, calling them little folk who frolic alongside the juggernaut car of war to see what fun or notoriety they can extract from the proceedings. How small they all look now uh, in the light of history. When I am abroad, I always make it a rule never to criticize or attack the government of my own country, Churchill said in 1948. I make up for lost time when I come home. <laughs> <laughs> he uh, also said of the Labour MP, Richard Crossman, in that same debate, the Honourable Member is never lucky in the coincidence of his facts with the truth. <laughs> Churchill never wrote or spoke, spoke much about sex, although in his uh, Marlborough biography, he blamed the death of King Charles II at the age of 54 on, quote, the deep inroads which continuous sexual excitement had wrought upon his vigorous frame. Before I cause this audience any unnecessary panic, may I point out there is no medical evidence whatsoever to suggest that you can die uh, from that. And, um, and probably plenty to suggest quite the opposite. The entire Churchill canon only contains two other references to lovemaking. In 1951, he said that tobacco is bad for love, but old age is worse. And uh, three years later, accepting an honorary law doctorate from the University of the State of New York, he said, apropos of his parentage, sex was not born till protoplasm, or protozoa if you prefer, divided itself. But, but for this uh, split, the sexes would not have had all the fun in coming together again. Otherwise, it was one of the very few subjects upon which this Victorian nobleman avoided pontificating. At a dinner in Ottawa in January 1952, an open microphone allowed journalists to overhear what Churchill told Louis Saint-Laurent, the uh, Canadian Prime Minister. The Almighty moves in its mysterious ways his wonders to perform. He has used his servant Stalin to make the closest association ever dreamed of to unite the nations of the West. At a lunch in the French Embassy in July 1954, Clementine Churchill overheard Lord Halifax saying that her husband was becoming a handicap to the Conservative Party. If the country had depended on you, we might well have lost the war, she snapped. Churchill told her not to apologize. <laughs> At Churchill's funeral, his last private secretary, Anthony Montague Brown, was afflicted with what he called black melancholy thoughts of the decline and decay of so much of what Winston Churchill had stood for well might the nation mourn him. As if to underline that, when he got back to London after attending the private family burial at Bladen in Oxfordshire, he discovered that his flat had been burglarized. This speech is 5,800 words long, so it represents less than 10% of the 60,000 I had to cut out of my book at the last minute. <laughs> Put another way, I could have made 10 speeches with the same quality of Churchill material as I've given you tonight, and still not quite cover what I had to edit out of the book. I don't mean this in a self-pitying way, uh, but only to show the extraordinarily rich material that Churchill biographers can glean from a life so varied and full. And I'm going to conclude my, di my director's cut, as I like to call it, on a note of Anglo-American amity, which of course is so important today especially today, because today was the day we should have got out of the European Union. <laughs> um, <coughs> um, yeah. um, the hinge has turned, Churchill told a lunch at the Mansion House on the 30th of June, 1943. Upon the fraternal association and intimate alignment of policy of the United States and the British Commonwealth and Empire depends more than any other factor the immediate future of the world. If they walk, or if need be, march together in harmony and in accordance with the moral and political conceptions to which the English-speaking peoples have given birth and which are frequently referred to in the Atlantic Charter, all will be well. If they fall apart and wander astray from the commanding beacon light of their destiny, there is no end or measure to the miseries and confusion which await modern civilization.
On reflection, ladies and gentlemen, I should have found space for that. Thank you very much. So I have um, a number of questions that you've uh, sent um, over. Thank you. In fact, a huge number. So, um, so let's get going. Did Churchill suffer from debilitating depression? Was he ever diagnosed manic depression? The answer is no. No in both uh, cases. Um, he only once ever referred to the, um, ever used the phrase black dog. And that was when his wife, Clementine, he was writing to his wife, Clementine, in July 1911. And uh, at that time, the phrase was used to, uh, by, by Edwardian matrons to explain their bad-tempered children. He was not subject to chemical imbalance, um, depression, or to manic depression, let alone, as I've seen in some biographies, to... Um, uh, to, to more serious disorders. Um, that, is, um, that is simply something I've never been able to, um, to, uh, to find, really. He was able to... Uh, it's a debilitating illness, depression, and he was able to chair 900 meetings of the Defence Committee of the War Cabinet during the Second World War at all times of day or night. He did get depressed, undoubtedly he got depressed. Of course he did, he got depressed at the time in uh, February 1942 at the fall of Singapore and June 1942 at the time of the fall of Tobruk. He was depressed a lot during the Dardanelles uh, catastrophe. Um, but those are times that any sentient decision maker would have got depressed and uh, it's not the result of... Um, of anything medical. Um, is it true that after giving a talk, Churchill was accused of being drunk by an elderly woman? He replied by calling her ugly. Um, it's actually a lot funnier than that. <laughs> um, I, uh, um, it's, it was, um, uh, yes, it was Bessie Braddock who was a friend of his. And this is the key thing. It was, it, it was, it was said in, um, in friendship rather than as a... Uh, than as an abusive um, uh, comment that, um, that was being unpleasant. But uh, he was leaving the House of Commons and um, it was very late uh, in... First of all, very late in the, in the, in the evening, but also uh, very late in his life. And um, Bessie Braddock, a, uh, a, a rebarbative and rather splendid uh, Labour member, uh, said, to her, said to him very famously... Um, Winston, you're drunk, and he replied, yes, um, and you're ugly, but at least in the morning I shall be sober. Um, <laughs> and um, uh, it was an old... It was an old musical gag that he had heard 50 years before, and in that extraordinary, capacious brain of his, he, he, he kept it in there for use at the absolute, uh, absolute perfect time. But it really is not something that we need to um, bother... Hashtag me too about. He wasn't, he wasn't trying to be uh, rude to a, to a nice old lady. Um, did Churchill's sense of humour make him popular with the British aristocracy? Um, well, it did whilst he was on... Uh, when it, whilst he was a Tory, but when he, uh, when he joined the Liberal Party, um, it, uh, he became fabulously unpopular because he would make joke after joke about the aristocracy. And, of course, this is a man who was born in a palace, the grandson of a duke. Um, he had three cousins in the, uh, who were um, in the House of Lords and he didn't find this kind of thing funny at all. And so, in fact, what we always uh, loved the speeches of um, Winston Churchill and the jokes that he made, but he did make... Um, he, he, he didn't just make jokes purely for the humour. He used his humour as a weapon, as a political weapon, to change the subject or to ridicule an enemy or to um, do any number of... or to get the crowd onto his side, of course. Um, it was... Uh, his, his extraordinary capacity for humour was something that he deployed um, uh, politically. If you had to choose one person from your leaders of war book, who do you think had the greatest influence on modern history? Oh, golly. Um, well, that's a very good question. There are, there are so many of them, in fact. Um, it's a, it's a, an appalling um, thing to say, but I think in the way that the sheer level of horror and destruction that he caused of the 20th century, Hitler, 
um, has to be seen as the uh, as a central figure of a century, along with Lenin um, uh, and Stalin, of a century that was so violent and so monstrous in the way that it uh, treated humankind that I'm afraid that much as I'd like to choose Winston Churchill as being em emblematic of the 20th century, uh, I'm afraid I have a very low view of that century and therefore the greatest influence, I think, was uh, the most evil man who ever lived. Um, who were some of Churchill's favorite writers that you can recommend reading today? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, the great historians, the great Victorian historians, um, do bear rereading today. In particular, I mean Macaulay and, um, and then the pre-Victorian historian Edward Gibbon. Um, the um, decline and fall of the Roman Empire, which I read when I was at Cambridge University, was still for me, is still for me, the greatest work of history that, uh, that I've ever read. It is to be seen now, as we know, because so much more work has been done by, um, by historians on ancient Rome, much more as a work of literature than as a, a definite work of, um, of uh, historical truth. But as a work of literature, the, the, um, the mastery of uh, the epigram is um, something that was incredibly profound on Churchill. Many of Churchill's best lines can be seen as attempted Gibbonian um, uh, epigrams. Please describe Churchill's relationship with Queen Elizabeth. Um, thank you, Jesse Aids, eight-year-old uh, in the audience. That's, very, uh, that's, a, that's a very good question, Jesse. Um, it was a wonderful relationship. Where is Jesse? Can, can Jesse say hello? There, 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 there. Here we go. Um, uh, it was a wonderful relationship. It was the exact opposite of what you see in the movie, uh, in the TV series, The Crown. Um, don't, when, you, when you're old enough to watch that um, show, don't. Um, <laughs> it's uh, it's, uh, it's um, completely factually incorrect from beginning to end. Uh, in fact, they had a wonderful relationship, and it was um, the reason it was so good, apart, of course, from the fact that Churchill had been a friend of Queen Elizabeth's uh, father, um, King George VI, was that they both loved horses and horse racing. And they would spend the first 10 minutes of their weekly audience at Buckingham Palace uh, chatting about their races. And uh, on one occasion when one of Churchill's horses beat the Queen's, uh, he, uh, he said that he would um, have much preferred them to have been uh, neck and neck, but that's not how, um, how things worked. And uh, the Queen loved um, Churchill. She reminisces about Churchill to all her other prime ministers, which completely puts them in the shade. <laughs> um, and um, also, their private secretaries, who were also good friends, would sit outside the, um, the audience room in Buckingham Palace and they would, uh, and the audience was supposed to go on for an hour, and sometimes it would go on for another half an hour after that. And all they'd be able to hear through the closed doors were peals of laughter. Uh, so, um, so yes, it's uh, it was a it was a wonderful relationship. And thank you very much, Jesse, for that. Very good. Easily the best question so far. <laughs> um, what were Churchill's views on the political issues that ultimately led to the First World War? Um, they're all very well summed up, I think, in chapter nine um, <laughs> of, uh, of, of this book. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but um, <laughs> but um, <clears throat> beyond the obvious uh, advertisement, um, he uh, he was one of the early people to spot um, the dangers posed by Wilhelmine Germany to the uh, the hegemonistic dangers posed by Wilhelmine Germany to the. Um, to the balance of power in Europe in, in 1914. He was, uh, of course, the first Lord of the Admiralty, and so he was in a driving position to be able to do something about it. And one of the things that he did about it in 1911 was uh, when he saw technologically how it would be possible to change the entire Royal Navy from being coal-fired to being oil-driven. Um, oil and, of course, this was a huge strategic um, decision that the British cabinet had to take because um, we had enormous amounts of coal, of course, in Britain and uh, no oil at that time. 
And so in order to fuel the Royal Navy, we had to ensure that we set up the Anglo-Persian Oil Corporation. We would be involved in the politics of the Middle East um, uh, with Mosul and so on. I hardly need to tell an American audience the, uh, how important that part of the world is. And, uh, and that we would be effectively um, committed to ensuring that, uh, that we were able to get oil out of uh, these parts of the world, which hitherto we hadn't had very much um, uh, connection with. But an oil-powered um, cruiser and battleship can go so much faster, can have so much more iron cladding on it, can be so much more effective than any of the um, German battleships and cruisers of the day. And although the Germans did, of course, catch up, as soon as they saw what we were doing, they had to do it too. Nonetheless, it showed that uh, Churchill was always on the cutting edge of, um, of technology. And of course, only three years later, he also was responsible for godfathering the tank. Um, as remote as it was during his time, would Churchill have been in favor of a European Union? Of all days to ask me that. <laughs> um, Winston Churchill was, the, in many ways, the progenitor of the concept of the um, European project. He, as he said, never wanted to see Teuton fight Gaul ever again. He was in favour of the French and the Germans coming together economically to ensure that they could never actually uh, fight one another. He'd lost far too many friends in the First World War and the Second World War ever to do that. And so the great speeches that he made in uh, Strasbourg and Zurich and The Hague uh, in the late 1940s mentioned the United States of Europe for the first time. However, when he actually became Prime Minister in 1951, and he was Prime Minister between 1951 and 1955, only two years before the Treaty of Rome, which brought about the European Economic Community, he did nothing in power to bring Britain closer towards a multilateral um, organization of European states. And the reason for that was, although he wanted it to happen, he didn't want Britain to be part of it, ever. <laughs> And he was, um, uh, so he turned down the opportunities of being involved in the Iron and Steel uh, Confederation, the European Army, all those, uh, those multilateral ideas. And he put out some um, extremely toughly worded documents and memoranda to the cabinet, which are in my book. And he, um, and he uh, therefore has to be judged, I think, on what he actually did in government as opposed to just the things that he said in um, in opposition, but even the things in opposition, you look at them carefully, they, at no point does he ever say that Britain should be a member of this. He, he um, uh, believed that the Empire and Commonwealth still had a life. He believed, of course, in the special relationship, uh, a phrase that he himself had coined, and he thought that both of those would be damaged if Britain went into an exclusive trading uh, or semi-exclusive trading relationship with the um, United States. The only, t sorry, with the um, European Union. The only point at which, of course, he ever actually spoke about this, um, because it didn't come into full effect, um, the, uh, the the concept of Britain joining until 1961 in the Harold Macmillan um, Premiership, was when he was sitting up in bed in hospital after a fall that he'd had, and. General Montgomery went to visit him. And the journalists afterwards uh, crowded around Montgomery and asked, um, and asked how, uh, how Churchill was. And uh, Montgomery said that he was sitting up in bed. This is in a hospital, ladies and gentlemen. He's sitting up in bed, uh, drinking brandy, smoking his cigars, and saying that Britain shouldn't join the European economic <laughs> community. Um, but otherwise, we don't have anything uh, directly from him um, about that. <coughs> Is there any new information you discovered included in the paperback reissue? Um, no, there isn't, but um, there are some papers that are being um, released in, will be released uh, sometime over the next year. Uh, very exciting and interesting uh, papers that um, I'm not going to tell you what they are, uh, <laughs> owing to the fact that I might put them into a future uh, paperback 
in which case you're going to have to buy the paperback uh, the second time. <laughs> Sorry about that. There's nothing I can do about that. That's um, in hindsight, is there any information you included in tonight's talks you wish you'd included in the book instead? Um, yes, but there's lots. But the trouble is you've then got to work out what to take out of the book in order to insert the, uh, the other information. And, and it, is, it is like chopping off your own fingers, uh, trying to cut, uh, cut work that you've already... Sometimes when you go to an archive and you'll, you'll spend a week in an archive and, and find in the last box that you're looking in some, some wonderful phrase or, or great paragraph and you think how fantastic and then, and then two years later or three years later when you're actually writing the book, um, it, uh, it, it, you just haven't got space for it. And so you would have wasted that week of your life. Not entirely wasted, because there's all, it was always interesting to have done. But nonetheless, it is a, uh, it's, it's a fairly soul-destroying um, uh, moment when you realise that, um, that there's just better information elsewhere. But that's one of the, uh, the ups and downs of being an historian, really. Why did W.C. continue to write known fabrications in his post-World War II history that significant persons could easily dispute? What known fabrications? <laughs> Sorry, I, I no. The Second World War book is a extremely good book when it comes to documentation. He has documentary proofs for pretty much absolutely everything that he said in the Second World War. He had a group of um, uh, army, navy, and air force experts, all of them generals or admirals, who uh, or air chief marshals, who helped him with this book. He, he did not include uh, known fabrications. Uh, if anything, actually, what he did was to, was to um, play down uh, some of the disputes that he had, especially, of course, with um, President Eisenhower, um, because President Eisenhower was, uh, was um, um, the American head of state at the time, and he was uh, trying to become prime minister. So he, uh, if anything, actually underplayed things, but he, he didn't uh, uh, insert... Um, known fabrications. Whoever writ wrote that, can they come up afterwards and tell me what they're, uh, what they're talking about? How accurate was The Darkest Hour? Um, ah, that's a very good question. It was... I love that movie, by the way. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. Um, its heart was in the right place, um, which is not always the case with, uh, with movies about Winston Churchill. Um, he, uh, Gary Oldman played him brilliantly. That twinkle in his eye and the chuckle in his voice absolutely captured him, um, I thought. And um, the one completely ludicrous scene, which is, of course, the one where he went down into the subway uh, station and used a trainload of people as a focus group uh, <laughs> about whether or not he was going to continue to fight, who um, uh, should fight uh, Hitler... Unfortunately for me, that entirely undermined the central message of what the movie um, should have been about, which was that it, it was actually Churchill who told the British people what they were going to do, rather than the British people telling Churchill what he was going to do. There's, there's, I mean, of course, there's a symbiotic relationship every day going backwards and forwards between them, but nonetheless, uh, part of the greatness of Churchill was this leadership concept that he was actually uh, telling the British people what was going to happen next, and they were following him and his extraordinary leadership. So in that sense, it didn't work. But in every other sense, I thought that that was a, a really first-class um, first movie, and I, I can never watch it too often. Um, so many anecdotes tonight were told with such colourful and precise detail. What kind of sources did you use to reveal so many fascinating sto stories? Um, well, first of all, thank you very much. Um, and secondly, uh, the thing about... One of the things that makes it actually quite easy, in a sense, to be a Churchill biographer is that every single person who ever met him wrote down what he said and wrote, and wrote in their diaries and their letters and their correspondence to various other people and uh, memoranda, and uh, they were telling it jokes at dinner parties that came from Winston Churchill, or supposedly did. He was one of those people to whom witty remarks accrete. Um, uh, wouldn't it be marvellous to be one of those people uh, who, um, who, uh, uh, to whom witty remarks accreted? Um, and, uh, and so, actually, the, the uh, provenance of the stories, of all of the stories that I gave tonight, apart from the, um, the 
rather risque David Lloyd George uh, one um, about, about Mrs. Lloyd George. Uh, other than that, they can all be double-checked in, uh, in the papers of uh, whoever it was that, um, that gave them. Oh, that's the last one. Magnificent. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NYHistory, or visit us at nyhistory.org.